0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au We always want to be like the other people around us. And I think this came particularly true for me uh, when I was growing up in the Territory, as I mentioned when I was being interviewed by Jimmy, that I grew up in a mainly Indigenous town. So pretty much everybody in my school class was Aboriginal, uh, probably about 90%. So I used to tell everybody that I was Jamaican. <laughs> I don't know why, it was kind of my way of like, fitting in. I wanted to be different, I didn't want to be white, so I said, yeah, I'm Jamaican. I, I liked Cool Runnings, and uh, I liked a bit of Bob Marley, so I was like, yeah, this is where I'm from. Uh, it was kind of my way of being something I, wanted, I wasn't. But then, I got to high school. It's like the ultimate situation where you just want to be like everybody else. You, we, my generation went from like surfy hair, to emo fringes, to tight bright and fluoro, like we just did everything, to fit in, we just wanted to be what everybody else was doing. We listened to Screamo, we listened to rap, we listened to pop, whatever anybody else was doing, that's what we did, so we could fit in there. But then after school, I thought maybe this would leave me, but it just doesn't. My desire to be like the people around me and to look sideways and see how they're going, just got worse and worse. I think we, we look to the people, to our right and to our left, and we kind of think, they look like they've got it all together. They look like they know exactly what's going on in their life. They look like they have some kind of a plan. And then enter Facebook and Instagram. Like these things I just love. I love these apps. I get to like, share funny photos all day. I get to catch up with mates online. I get to make new friends. I get to share about my interesting hobbies, like hunting, to people who don't know much about it. I just, I just love this stuff, but what I love most is the fact that I get to compare my life with other people's. I get to look sideways and see what I'm doing that other people aren't, or where they are, and I get jealous of where they are in their life. What a sickness these things are in my life. So when I hear this passage today, when, when we read about the Israelites who are sitting there and they're comparing themselves with everybody around them, I just think, this is not a new feeling. You feel this, I feel this, and they've felt this. So let's get into it. Because this is something that people throughout time have struggled with on a personal level, and Israel here on a corporate level. And if you're going to fall asleep at the start of the sermon, I kind of want to say my big idea straight away, and then you can nod off. Please go for it. I think the big idea of this passage is this. that Israel wanted to be like the other nations around them, and they rejected God's call on their life to be a holy people set apart. That's what we're going to see through 1 Samuel 8. Uh, And so please come with me as we work through it. But first, context to the book of Samuel. So I understand you've been in a psalm series, Uh, And it's kind of cool because when Jimmy gave me a ring and asked me to come and preach here, I've kind of been thinking and wrestling with the book of Samuel and I was like, oh, can I preach from there? And it's kind of cool because the Psalms were written at this time. This is like the post-exilic Israel's heyday. Uh, David is about to become king. This is kind of the context of when Psalms were written. And for those who aren't particularly familiar with the Bible, Samuel is at the start of in the middle of the Old Testament. It's kind of, uh, it's a great book. But the whole Bible starts with Genesis, right? This is where we see God creating this amazing, fantastic, abundant, perfect planet. And at the centre of this creation is humans. We're put here and we're to nurture and we're to love the earth and we're to love God. This is what we're created for. But as we know, in Genesis 3, it doesn't stay like that. We reject God, we reject His creation, we reject Him and we elevate ourselves above Him. And this doesn't go well for us. We then are subject to death, we're subject to sin, we're subject to the, what we wanted for ourselves. But God doesn't leave humanity in this doom... He immediately puts in a motion a plan to save humanity from themselves through Himself. We see Him in Genesis choose a nation, He chooses the Israelites, and they are able to represent what a life of love and devotion with the presence of God is to look like to the other nations around them. But time and time again through the Old Testament we see them, they don't trust God and they reject Him and He shows up. They... Uh, try to do things their way and he just keeps on showing up. He just keeps on having this grace after grace on their lives but they just keep on trying to rely on themselves and not on God the whole way time and time and time again. Because the whole time he keeps on making this promise to them that they're going to have his presence with a land and a people and they're going to be a blessing to the nations around them. So then we land in the book of Samuel, chapter 8. Israel have the people they have the land, and they kind of have His presence, but they're not content. They're winning some wars, they're going okay as a nation, but they're losing others. They've got some leaders who start off good and then go terrible, and some leaders that start off terrible and stay terrible. So chapter 8, Samuel is the last of the judges, he's well known, and he's got these two sons, I think the uh, verse is going to come up on the board. Uh, he's got these two sons, they took brides, bribes and they perverted justice. These dodgy judges aren't what Israel wanted over them. They looked at the nations around them and they thought we want what they have. This is what we want to look like, we, they have it all together. Now the nations around Israel at this time are the Assyrian Empire, the Philistines and Babylon is kind of on the rise. Um, these are like massive baller LeBron James nations, like they are just epic proportions. Their cities were insanely cool. They had these massive fortified walls, they had prosperity, they had uh, protection from the raging tribes around them, they had food, they had markets, they had armies, they had all the things that you see in movies like Troy or Gladiator, that's what these epic cities were like. This is who was around uh, the Israelites. And then, most of all, in these cities, you had the kings. You had these massive, tall, I imagine buff or super fat, ruthless, marvelous, like godlike beings who brought conquest and prosperity to the nations that they were running. These kings and queens were thought of as gods in the ancient world. This is who little quivering Israel was surrounded by these superpowers, they had a little bit of momentum, they had a little bit of prosperity, but they looked at the Philistines, they looked at the Assyrians and they just thought, we're not like the people around us. They, like all of us, are having a huge identity crisis. That feeling that they're doing something one way and it's the wrong way and that they're the weird ones. They're like me, when I stood there for my little school photos, this sunburned white Irish kid, Amongst these, like these slick, cool indigenous guys. It was just, I was out of place. Israel here are not fitting in. They're in a land that they've been promised, but they're looking around, they're just thinking, we just don't fit in. So they're going to go down a human route to try to fix this problem. So, one thing to notice from that verse 4 is that Samuel's sons haven't followed in his ways. Look with me. Because Samuel has failed in his job as the spiritual representative of Israel. This is not a ministry job well done by Samuel. Because Samuel knows the law and Samuel trusts God, but the people below him don't. They don't understand it. They don't see it. You see this theme all the way through Judges and the start of Samuel. The keepers and the teachers of the law aren't fulfilling their roles, they're not passing down what they know well. So here we have Samuel failing at what we call discipleship. Now discipleship is still super important today and it's not merely filling someone up with head knowledge, is it? No, it's encouraging someone to love Jesus and to walk with Him and to know God deeply. I know so many people who could smash anybody in Bible trivia but yet their hearts and their minds are so far away from Jesus. Knowledge of the Bible does not save people. It doesn't save you. But a relationship with the Saviour is the thing that saves you. Of course, this relationship is cultivated through listening to God, through Scripture, but don't think for a moment that the Bible verses that you have memorised are the things that are going to save you. Because if, they are the, if you think they are the thing that's going to save you, you haven't understood them. Where Samuel has failed here is raising his sons in the will of God. They don't seem to love God, rather they love bribes. They don't seem to love justice, rather they pervert justice. In Deuteronomy, there's a command to raise your kids in the law. Samuel may have done that, but the law has not touched the hearts of his sons. This is, I think, our first piece of warning application that comes out of this passage. This is, a not uncommon, this is not an uncommon thing at all. I know so many great Christian parents whose children, tragically, don't know Jesus. If you have kids here, please raise them with the Gospel on your lips. And if you're a kid here, if you're a teenager here, Take note of the amazing adults around you that you have in this room. I know some of them and there are some really special people in this room. They love you, they are for you, listen to them. If we don't raise our kids and families in the knowledge of the gospel, it cannot be surprising when they don't know it, they forget it or ultimately they reject it. Now, please don't hear me saying that if your kids aren't Christian, then you've failed. That is not what I'm saying at all. Our job as parents or siblings, uncles, aunts of young people, our job as old people in the same church as children is to endeavour to help them know the Lord so that they may have perfect relationship with Him. But if it hasn't happened, it's not your fault. But what we can do is cultivate a culture that encourages this. Because if the gospel isn't preached in our houses, or our churches, our meeting places, then this, it is unlikely that this is going to happen. But I digress. Sorry, I tend to do this a bit with passages, so let's go back to verses 5 to 7. So Israel have had some lousy judges over them, so it's not surprising when they come to Samuel and they ask him to give them a king, and ta- Samuel takes this as an offence of himself. He goes to God and repeats what Israel have said to him, and what does God say? God replies with, Samuel, this is not an offence of you, they have rejected me. Because Samuel is the great priest and prophet representing God's presence with the people. By saying they didn't want a judge like Samuel, it was like saying they didn't want a judge like God. Now, this is a horrible, horrible statement. This is that moment in every parent's life when their kid turns to them and they say, I hate you. I don't want you to be my mum anymore. I wish I had a different dad. I wish I was born into another family. Do you feel the weight of this offence? This is horrendous. What an offence to the king of the universe the Father of all creation, the author of their very breaths. God is the author of all. He's the one with authority over all, and He's chosen Israel to be His holy people, set apart. And what do they say? They say, we don't want you. Give us a king like the other nations around us. Here we have Israel making a clear, conscious decision against God. They're seeing the other nations around them and they're seeing their wealth and their good fortune and they're attributing it all to their kings. Israel is thinking that if they have a king like the other nations, then maybe they'll prosper like the other nations. And God has every right in my book to snap His fingers and just end this nation right here, right now. If any of us were in His position and we felt this type of rejection... I assume we wouldn't have a speck of the grace that we're about to see extended. Because from eight uh, verses 10 to 18, we get this stern, father-like warning through Samuel, from God, about the consequences of them having a king over them. And God's warning, it's not a light warning. He doesn't hold any punches. It's a harsh warning. He says things like, this king will take your children and he's going to make an army out of them. He will oppress them. He will make them work. He will send them to battle. Your children are going to die. This will not be good for you, Israel. You've been warned. And we sit here and we think, how could Israel possibly still go ahead with it now? Look how clear God has made us for them. But, like an obvious sign on our road, this is easily not seen. Because we drive around and signs say 60, 80, 40. I was driving the other day and you've got this big sign that says speed camera ahead. And I kind of just think, how could anybody possibly still get caught by speeding when that sign is in front of that camera? And then two weeks later, when my fine arrived in the mail, I kind of thought, how could I have been caught by that speed camera? And then I make excuses for myself. I think I was going downhill. It was the car, it wasn't me. Uh, But the fact is... I missed the sign that says, speed camera ahead, didn't I? I was an idiot. I didn't take it in. And it's the same with our own sin. We sit here and our ministers will say, they'll condemn sin and they'll talk about, you know, how bad the world is and we think, yeah, the world's terrible. And we we can't even fathom how some people who are around us can kind of live the sinful lives that they're living. And then we get home. We're by ourselves. We're alone with our thoughts. And we just let sin creep in. It haunts us. It takes over us. We start judging others. We start manipulating others. We start using others. We all do it. Your ministers do it, I do it, you do it. And if you're sitting there saying, I don't do it, you're doing it right now. But it's weird because we as Christians, we're in light of this new covenant. We have full freedom and right relationship with God. It's awesome, through Jesus. But yet, we're still under this constant attack of our own sinful nature. And Scripture warns us to flee as a way of combating this. It doesn't say to dance with it, it says to flee it. Yet most of us, I do, we like to see how close we can get to it. We kind of like to watch the things that get us as close as we possibly can to God's law without actually breaking the rules, don't we? We watch these TV shows that really just push us to the edge of what we think is okay for Christians to do. We don't flee. I don't think most of us come close to fleeing. I don't think we treat what God has warned us about with the gravity of which He has warned us. A quote from John Piper, which is in my head daily, is this, he says, keeping some sin in your life is like having a pet tiger and naming it fluffy and letting it run all around the house doing whatever it wants. You'd have to be a fool to one day wake up and be surprised if Fluffy is eating you and killing your family. We cannot afford to have sin roaming free in our households. It will destroy them. Israel here is choosing to ignore what God is saying to them. He's saying to them like a good parent what the consequences of having a king will be like and they're choosing to name their tiger Fluffy. But why is this such a bad thing? Why is this such a bad thing for Israel to do that? Because Israel is not living up to the gift of grace that has been bestowed on them. He said, I'll be your good leader. You don't need any other false gods. I'll be your God. You will be my holy people. Now, holy means set apart, different, unique and special. God has called His people to be holy like He is holy, to be distinct, to be unique They had to bless the nations around them with this distinctness. But their request for a king is their request just to be like everybody else. Now, it's weird because God has actually promised them a king in Deuteronomy, so it's not technically bad for Israel to have a king, we knew it was coming, but it is an ungodly thing, the reason why they wanted the king and the way that they asked for the king. It was their motivation here. Israel is choosing not to be the nation that is set apart. They're asking for the wrong thing with the wrong motives. Now, Israel have completely ignored the voice of God through Samuel and they say to him in verse 18, no, we want to give us, we want you to give us a king that will judge us like the other nations, that he may judge us, that he may fight our battles, not God. When Samuel heard what they said, he repeated it to God and God just gives this amazing commandment to obey them and give them a king. This hope in mere human leadership is awful. It's a terrible thing. It's a sinful thing that they're putting their hope in humans and not in God. And I think this has got to be one of the most common sins still to this day on the planet. It's definitely the most common sin in my life. I think A.W. Tozer puts it perfectly when he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing to us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing to us because for me, often it's myself or it's other people who I love and respect who might be great Christians but it's not God. So, I want to ask you the question, what is the thing that comes into your mind when you think about God? Now, as mentioned, I became a Christian when I was about 20 and during this time there were a couple of really key people in my life, like my now wife Carly, Uh, she was very important in evangelising to me, some great friends and family around me, Uh, different kind of celebrity ministers like uh, Tim Keller, John Piper and Mark Driscoll, they really helped me understand who God was and the real love of God and so when Mark Driscoll had this kind of fall from grace, I was really upset, I was really stunned And I had to do some serious work with God in figuring out whether I actually had my hope in Mark Driscoll or whether I had my hope in God. Who is it that you actually have your hope in? Who is it that if they weren't in your life, you would crumble? It's worth thinking about, it's worth reflecting on it, because it feels like weekly I get an email about a brother or sister who I love, who has fallen away from from the faith... It just destroys me. And it's so taxing, but it's so unsurprising because we're humans and humans are flawed. When we put our hope and our trust and our love and everything in humans, we're just setting ourselves up to let ourselves down. When we look at the other nations, the other people around us saying, if only we had a life like that and then everything would be okay, we are making the exact same mistake that Israel made here. So, what's God trying to tell us through this passage? I think one of the things is that every form of human leadership is broken, no matter how good it looks. He's saying, stop comparing yourself to the other nations around you. Stop comparing yourself to the other churches around you. Stop comparing yourself to the other people around you and keep your eyes on things above. Now I want you to think about what your hope is in, I really want you to think about Do you seriously think there's a human solution for every cosmic problem that we have on earth right now? Or have you come to terms with the fact that as long as humans are involved, until the second coming of Christ, it's going to be hard. It's going to be flawed. We're going to have bad human leadership. Your pastors will let you down. Your parents will let you down. Your friends will let you down. You will let other people down. Because bad leadership is bad leadership and all humans are bad. Failing to be God's people under God's rule and blessing amongst the other nations, Israel set itself up for failure and God in His infinite wisdom allowed this to actually happen, didn't He? We must take heed from this lesson, brothers and sisters, and not put our hope and love and trust in a mere human leader that will let us down because I think we can be tempted to do this with politicians or church leaders, with spouses, with children, with friends. If you put your hope and love and trust in of the future in humans, it's going to be destined to fail. We are Christians and we're called to be set apart from the world, but we're still in the world. But let's not put our love and hope and our trust in the world. In 1 Peter, we're told to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's not us to, up to us to stack our hope or, resor- or resource in politics or the leadership of our day. Rather, we are to live gospel-shaped lives that the generations after us who are running around here now may see them and want to emulate them. I encourage you to put your hope and your love and your trust in the one who will never let you down. Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, he descended to this very line of royalty that's about to be established right here. I encourage you to go home tonight and finish reading the book of Samuel as a family. It's awesome. You see king after king fail and fail and fail and then you get to Jesus. Jesus was the king that Israel needed. He was the very presence of God who represented them and fought for them before the judgment throne of God by taking on their sin, by taking on their wickedness and ultimately taking on their punishment that they deserved. But we know that it wasn't just their wickedness, just their sin and just their punishment that He took on. He took on yours. He took on anybody who put their hope and love and trust in Him to make them in right relationship with God. If you trust in Jesus, He is the one that you live for, He is the King that you need and He is the Saviour that you know. And if you don't yet trust Him, I invite you now to think about what your hope and your love and your trust is in. Is it in our world leaders? Is it in our celebrities? Is it in your family? Or worse, is it in yourself? Jesus offers you freedom from putting your hope and your love and your trust into people who will ultimately let you down, but rather, he puts, encourages you to put your hope, love and trust into someone who is real, someone who is advocating for you and fighting for you right now at this very minute. Jesus Christ loves you and He wants you. And if you don't yet know Him, I really encourage you to stick around after the service, grab one of the leaders, grab a Bible, read one of the Gospels and figure out who this ultimate King is. Figure out what a real leader looks like. Just to recap a bit, for those with younger Christians in your lives, we need to look at Samuel for an example about how not to leave our ministries, okay? Because the leaders of the church tomorrow are coming out of this building. They're coming out of your homes and they're coming out of your ministries. We cannot be like Samuel and be happy with a life of devotion led by ourselves and not passed on to the other generations. What a wasted life this would be. Let's raise the next generation in knowing the law of Jesus so that they do not command demand a king who isn't him. Because if Christians are looking sideways like I'm so prone to do, then we're not finding our identity, our hope and our love and our assurance in Christ. We're repeating the mistakes of Israel right here. The Israelites having a king wasn't a bad thing in the long run, but their motivations, their desires were terrible. We are a distinct nation that has been set apart from the world. Let us not look sideways and compare, but let us look ahead and praise. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for your word and we thank you that you are the ultimate king who is right now sitting there advocating for us, fighting for us, defending us. Uh, We pray that we may be constantly looking to your throne, be constantly humbling ourselves to you, Be constantly loving you. Father, we repent of the times that we put our hope, love, and trust in things that aren't you. And we just pray now that uh, you may forgive us of our sins of idolatry towards other people. We pray that we may not be like the Israelites who looked at the nations around them and attributed their power to mere humans, but may we look at the people around us and just want them to know Jesus like we know Jesus. And Father, I pray for anybody in this room who does yet not know Jesus. May You enter their hearts, Father. May they change their mind for You, and may they have right relationship with You. It's in Your mighty Son's name, we pray. Amen.